You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night. No matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale, even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great. In today's age, it can be hard to find the time to sit down and learn more. It's not easy when social media can be so addictive and time-consuming, you may think you don't have the time to read a book or develop yourself. So I recommend Blinkist. Blinkist is the only app that takes the best takeaways, the need-to-know information from thousands of nonfiction books, and condenses them down into just 15 minutes or less. Blinkist is made for busy people like you who want to get to the main points of a book quickly without reading an entire book. I'm going to amend that. Blinkist is made for busy people who really want to read a whole book, who enjoy reading whole books, but just can't make the time for it. Blinkist also has an audio feature, so you can listen to books, uh, sort of how you listen to a podcast. You know, I wouldn't say instead of a podcast, but, you know, in addition to a podcast. And 8 million people are using Blinkist right now. It has a massive and growing library in the nonfiction category. There's self-help, business, health, history. And I have actually been using it primarily for um, mindfulness research. And that might seem ironic to some people that I am using a app that condenses things for quick consumption in order to learn about mindfulness. But if there's one thing I've learned in my meditation practice my sporadic meditation practice, it's that you really just have to fit it in where you can. If you wait for the perfect moment to meditate, you may not ever get there. If you wait to have the time to read a whole book, you may not ever get there. So read what you can in the way that you can. I have learned that from the book Mindfulness by Mark Williams and Danny Penman, which is an eight-week plan for finding peace in the frantic world. And I've also been using Deep Work by Cal Newport. Uh, first heard about it from Ezra Klein, and it has really helped me rethink the way that I literally approach work, like how I work. I would love to read both of these books in their entirety, but you know what? I'm going to do what I can, and that is use Blinkist. And you can use Blinkist too right now for a limited time. Blinkist has a special offer just for this audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash with friends to start your free seven-day trial. That's Blinkist spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash with friends to start your free seven-day trial. That's Blinkist.com slash with friends. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These, where we usually talk about the differences between us without letting them divide us. Yes, that, that is what we usually do. I usually have guests that have different opinions or life experiences than I do, and we kind of talk through those differences of life experience or opinion. But every once in a while, I have someone on who has the same life experiences as I do, but those life experiences are different from a lot of people's. And those are the episodes where we talk about mental health, usually. And indeed, that is what this episode is about. I need to give you the mother of all content warnings before we get started. This show deals with depression and suicide, and drug use, and intimate partner abuse. There's a lot going on, basically. It is also pretty funny and hopeful, I think. So I encourage you to listen to it, even if those things are issues in your own life. But 
of course, please be in a good space. Be in whatever space you need to be before you listen. You can, you can take the day off. It's okay. I will not be hurt if you want to come back some other time. But do come back because I want you to hear this interview with Heather Armstrong. If you are an extremely online person, especially if you've been extremely online for a long time, you probably know who she is. She is Deuce. Deuce Deuce.com, one of the early popular single person blogs. She made a name for herself by getting fired, but then kept blogging and became very popular because she was so funny and smart and irreverent and candid, very candid about motherhood and marriage and religion and mental health, her own depression, life in general. She made a living doing that as, as, as some of us did. She sold banner ads against these experiences and did okay for herself, but then, you know, the bottom dropped out of the banner ad market. I had this experience as well. You could no longer just be funny and smart. You had to have sponsors and whatnot. And so she retreated from blogging. Uh, She became a consultant. Uh, She got divorced. And she slowly slipped into the deepest depression she'd ever had. There's something especially poignant about Heather's experience that I identify with a lot. This idea that you've been so candid and raw online at one point in your life And then you come to another point where you are really in pain and you don't tell anyone. You don't tell anyone until you have to. The valedictorian of being dead is in part about the radical treatment Heather undertook for that depression. It involved going into a medically supervised mini coma 10 times over four weeks but it's also a book about being known, truly known. The difference between having a public persona that plays at being candid and real, true, raw intimacy. I am thrilled to have her on. We will be right back to hear from Heather Armstrong, the valedictorian of being dead. Heather, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you? I am well, and I am excited to talk to you about your book, which I loved. And I know because I asked earlier, you have a section that you can read for us to to get us started. Would you Would you mind doing that? Yeah, I will do that. And just to give um, a little background, um, my brother and sister had watched me go through um, an experimental treatment that day. And it begins like this. As I was walking up the stairs, I got a text message. I turned on my phone to see who it was from. The rectangular white screen read, Ranger Hamilton. Ranger is his name. I opened it and looked down to read this. Today was a sacred experience for me, seeing you lying there completely in the zero abyss. I have never been more proud of you to be your brother. You have so much courage and so much fight in you. Your experience has now taken you to places I cannot imagine. Please know that I say this next part in total honesty. There were long past loved ones in the room watching over you. I felt them there, and I recognized them as sure as I know I was there. I had to lean against the countertop to steady myself. I knew exactly who he was talking about, the one person who immediately came to mind when my doctor initially told me about the treatment. Her name was Minnie Ann McGuire, and she was my great-grandmother, the mother of my mother's mother. She bore nine children, two of whom died, and she spent the majority of her life in what was then referred to as a mental institution in Kentucky. My mother and her siblings have often thought that she suffered from ongoing postpartum depression that wasn't ever able to heal because she continued to get pregnant. In the deaths of two of her children, only compounded her sorrow. Tragically, Minnie spent her final days in that mental facility and died there in 1968. The nurses told my grandmother that they loved Minnie and that she was the sweetest patient and the easiest to manage in the ward. 
My granny once told me that back in the day, there were no counselors and therapists like there are today. They would just take them to the mental institution up in Kentucky. Sometimes my mother would just sit for hours and stare. It seemed as though she was thinking. Sometimes she seemed emotionless. Other times, she could be violent. At times, she would lose her memory. I had thought in the brief moments after learning about this treatment, will I be the one who ends up dying in a hospital? Despite the immediate hope that the promise of the treatment had given me, I remember being struck by the idea that I was the craziest of all who had descended from Minnie Ann McGuire. Of course I was. Of course it would be me. Her legacy is why I have fought so hard to get better each time my depression has reared its unforgiving head. Because back then, there were no counselors and therapists like there are today. She didn't have access to the care and the help that I have access to. And she died long before she could ever get it. What was my 18 months of hopelessness compared to the decades she spent locked inside an institution? All of this overcame me in that moment, especially the idea that here I was, given another chance at life, and it had worked. It had worked. If this long-past loved one was in that room watching over me, I would want her to know that I think of her every time I reach for my bag of pills at night and how lucky I am to have them. Her legacy is the fight I have inside of me. Her legacy is a mother holding on for the sake of her two young girls. I should have warned you before that I might cry. I might too. (laughs) (laughs) I can barely get through that usually when I'm reading it. Uh, Some listeners already know I have a mom. I've got a mom thing. So, um, oh, okay. Deep breath. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. (laughs) You got better. That's actually where we want to, we were, where we want to land this thing eventually is that you got better. (laughs) Exactly. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about the book's title, which I did not get at first, but you, you explain it pretty quickly. I think it might even be the book jacket. Yeah. The valedictorian of being dead. I connected with it. Once I understood it, I connected with it really hard. So explain it for folks. So um, really quickly, I was the valedictorian in high school. Um, I very quickly early on in childhood decided that if I was the best at everything, that I would make my mother happy. Um, And so my lifelong goal was to be the best at everything that I did. And so I graduated valedictorian high school. I got a full scholarship to the college of my choice. I was, you know, I graduated with honors. Um, I was always good at what I did. And and I was the third patient of 10, just the third, to go under this procedure. And when they put me under anesthesia, um, I went down so hard and so fast that they could barely get the breathing tube in fast enough. And they were startled by it. And my mother is standing there like, what is going on? And they're like, well, no one's ever done this before. No one's ever gone this, no one, no one's, ha- you know, ever gone down this far before. And she said, do you not know who you're dealing with? <laughs> <laughs> she's here. Yeah, she's the valedictorian of everything she does, including being exactly. done. I just feel so seen, I have to tell you. Um, oh, oh, good. <laughs> um, my friend and I have a reference to the same exact phenomenon of thinking if we can do everything perfectly, then everything will be okay. Um, we call it being a gold star girl. A um, <laughs> gold star girl. Yeah, but I'm, I introduced her to the term valedictorian for the same phenomenon, and now we're going to just steal that, I think. so. <laughs> um, you can have it. Thank you. But we should probably talk about the being dead part, which I also identify with in, in, in a way, but we can maybe talk more of that, that later. Let's drill down on, on this experimental treatment that you got, which, right. again, I think it's in the book jacket, but my God, it is a, it is literally a kind of mind-blowing thing to find out about. So this treatment, this experimental treatment that you did, it involved yes. dying. Yes. 
<laughs> I, I, I call it dying um, because I needed to express the gravity of what was happening to people. Um, my doctors and the doctors who were on the study would be very grave about calling it dying. <laughs> like, it's not technically dying. Except that um, they're trying to replicate the effects of ECT. Mm. And what they most scientists believe about ECT, when they shock the brain into a seizure, the seizure causes the brain to flatline for about two or three minutes. Um, and, and into what's called a burst suppression state, where it's flatlining and then there's a burst, and then it flatlines and there's a burst. And so they thought, well, okay, so ECT causes permanent memory loss and migraines and all sorts of like, you know, side effects that are undesirable. What if we could come up with something that didn't have side effects? And they realized that there were two anesthesias that you can use to take the brain all the way down to persuppression. And so they decided to use propofol in this treatment because propofol is used for many surgeries. Most people who have colonoscopies have propofol. Michael Jackson. Yes. (laughs) Um, I'm not going to talk about that, Um, but I do in the book. Trigger warning Um, for Michael Jackson. The Michael Jackson drug. (laughs) Right. Everybody said, oh, yep. it's the Michael Jackson drug. Yeah. Like, yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> um, Maybe now people will call it the Heather Armstrong drug. Billie Jean is not my lover. <laughs> and I would always, like, break out into a Michael Jackson song. Like, yes, I'm doing propofol. <laughs> um, and they would take my brain down all the way to basically nothing um, for 15 minutes. And I had to do it 10 times over the course of three weeks. So, of course, to agree to participate in a treatment that is so um, apparently terrifying, like, you, you go into detail in the book, like, there there were people around you, they, they knew what they were doing, although it was experimental, like, you know, it, it, you weren't literally dying. There are safeguards. But still, it's a dramatic step to take, and not one that right. everyone would. To get to that point, this is the place where I, I feel very much a connection. To get to that point, where did you have to be? <laughs> where did I have to be? Right. You know, um, I was in the worst bout of depression of my life, and I thought I was never going to get better. Um, I thought I'm just forever going to want to be dead. And... Um, I have experienced depressive episodes over my life, and I've been able to get through them either through talk therapy or a change of medication or, you know, all sorts of other tactics. You know, some people have, like, a a depressive episode, and they have one in in their life, and they're done. (laughs) And, you know, I'm happy for those people that they can just have (laughs) one depressive episode. Um, But for those of us who have multiple, um, we can get ourselves into treatment-resistant depression. And I had changed my medication, and I had run a marathon. I had changed my diet. I was doing everything you should be doing, except that I got deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into a hole that I couldn't climb out of. And every day and every moment of every day was haunted by the idea that I just didn't want to exist. And I resign myself to that. Like, I just I just don't ever want to be alive again. I'll just remain here in this state and continue, continue to exist like this forever. That's where I had gotten. And I was just so profoundly sad. When I talk to people about, about my own experience with depression and particularly suicidal depression— Sometimes what I feel like I have to make clear to them is the suicide part isn't about dying, if that makes right. sense. Exactly. It's about not existing. Exactly. Maybe you can explain the difference for people. Like, I, I yeah. know that I, 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 I get it. I know you get it. What, what would, how would you explain that difference? So, um, so suicidal ideation takes on many forms, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't like, I don't think that's talked about enough. Yeah. And I feel like 
um, what this experience has given me is the view from both sides. And what suicidal ideation does is it tells you and it demonizes your brain into thinking that you should no longer be here because you're wasting space. And you're making people's lives a burden. And someone else could do what you're doing better. And if you took yourself out of the equation, then you would remove the burden of yourself. And that is what the lie tells you. Except that when, you know, I have two girls. I made the commitment to bringing two children into the world. And I knew that I couldn't leave them. I knew that I could—that wasn't an option to exit their lives. Like, they needed to be taken care of. So dying wasn't an option, but the idea of not experiencing sensation, of having everything black and nothing, and and not feeling the burning, burning, burning acid sensation of anxiety all day long was so desirable that I talked about being dead all the time. But I didn't ever plan to kill myself. And that's an important distinction and one you you make in the book and one people should remember. But I think it's that nothingness is the part that people don't get. Right. Because that can come a long time before the ideation, before the planning. And Mm -hmm. so I think we need to start recognizing that nothingness as a sign, you know, because like you could have asked me years, are you planning on committing suicide? And I would have told you no. Right. Because I wasn't right. planning on it. But did I sometimes daydream about not existing? Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think that's why I made that call to my mom. Yeah. Um, I, I, I didn't want to reach out for help. Mm-hmm. But I think I knew that if I didn't have somebody from the outside step in, that I was eventually going to, I was eventually going to give in to the scary feelings. Yeah. Like I had very, very, very scary feelings at times that overtook me. And I would have to call my mom to say, I'm not okay in this moment. And there was that one moment where I was like, this moment is so scary that you have to come and intervene with it. Mm-hmm. And it was like a, almost a subliminal, like, you have to come save me and help me save me. Um, that nothingness will eventually consume you to the point where if you don't reach out, it will kill you. Yeah. There's a saying in AA that if you if you walk into a barbershop enough, eventually you get a haircut, which is a kind of silly saying. But mm-hmm. I think about that when yeah. I try to explain what that the appeal of that nothingness, right? If you dance up against that edge often enough. Often enough. Eventually... <laughs> It's going to, the siren song, you know, and it is that, at least for me, I would say it, is it was just like a, a call, like, yes, he, here's your option. Here's the option. Here it is. And that's what happened to me that one night when yeah. I fell to the floor and all of a sudden this darkness overcame me and all these thoughts overcame me, these really scary thoughts that I haven't really put down into words yet that I don't really want to put into words because of what they mean. And I knew that if I didn't make a phone call, that things were not going to be good. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about putting things into words, because you're sort of known for putting things into words. Um, You put a lot (laughs) of things into words. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Quite a few things. Lots of things into words. And even you're someone that was thought to be a very, confessional is not the right word, but very candid writer. Right? Yes. You appeared to be sharing lots of vulnerable things. You appeared to be sharing a lot of details about your life. So I think some people might be surprised that there was this whole period and whole thing that was happening that you couldn't share or had trouble sharing. Yeah, I, um, you know, I I took a step away from blogging. Uh, because the industry had changed mm-hmm. so violently. I'm going to use that word. Yeah. The industry changed so violently and so quickly that what I had signed up to do was no longer what was making money anymore. 
I had to do something that I didn't sign up to do, and I had to involve my children. And so I, I needed to take a step back from blogging, and during that time, um, this depression happened, and um, I was very scared because my ex had moved across the country to New York, and I live in Salt Lake City. So I'm raising my two kids by myself, and I'm trying to make a living, a full-time living, and I was really scared that if he found out just how bad I felt, that he would come after my kids. Um, and that was the one, like, major fear for me that um, kept me from getting, not only getting help, but writing about what I was going through. Nobody had any idea just how bad, badly depressed I was, except for a couple of people in my life. Because I'm also a refugee from Web 1.0, um, <laughs> I, I I would like to just flip the page back a, a little bit to talk about this violent change in the yes. industry, and then let's come back to talk about yes. why you couldn't talk about Because <laughs> you mentioned in the book that, that, and this is sort of almost wrapped up in like what happened for you emotionally, the spiral, because it involved your kids. So the way the industry changed, in case people don't know, do you want to explain like what the industry started to require? Oh, God. So you could make a really, really good living <laughs> off of banner ads for a very long mm -hmm. time. You could just, like, write whatever you wanted, and you could just run banner ads, and you could just, like, you know, rake in the dollars. And if you read any article about me, they start quoting a number that I have never confirmed. <laughs> <laughs> but they're like, Heather Armstrong, the woman who made millions off of mummy But you blogging. were making enough. Let's, but, let's just, just posit you were making enough, right? Like I was making enough. Banner ads right. were working. And then, like, overnight, like, and it happened all at the same time. So overnight, the bottom fell out of the banner ad market because they robotized it. Um, they made it into a robot who could sell what was selling for $7 was now selling for $0.15. Cents. And then the brands got in. The brands were like, oh, so these women are doing this and we can, like, get in on it? Fantastic. So we're now going to get in. And then um, everybody got on the different platforms. You're on Instagram or you're on Twitter or you're on Facebook and you stayed there all day long. You didn't go read anything. Um, and that's kind of continued to today. Mm -hmm. um, and so not only did the bottom fall out of the banner ad market, sponsors got involved and then the entire readership fractured into these little portions of like, I'm only going to read Pinterest, mm -hmm. right? So um, like overnight, overnight it happened and it was sudden and you realized, okay, I can adapt and I can write sponsored content or I can die. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe not quite so literally at the time, but yes. Right. Um, and I think it's really, there's an interesting tragic irony here, which is that um, those banner ads allowed us to write in really vulnerable and candid yes. ways because yes. you could write anything, right? You got to right. you got to show your true self because the ads, all the ads meant were just ad, all the ads were just ads, right? Exactly. And what sponsored content does, it asks you to prostitute that inner self, right? Like right. <laughs> it says, oh, you're being vulnerable, like you're being candid here, <laughs> you know. <laughs> we want to leverage that. And you talk about an incident in the book with your kids, right? Like you were trying to do sponsored content and the kids had to get involved? Yeah, I call it, I did a speech about it a couple of times and I call it the fraud of authenticity. Mm. Where you think that you're reading an authentic post by somebody when in fact they are in that activity because they are being paid by a brand to manufacture that experience for that brand. And I was in, um, you know, you and I were early days. I was one of the first people <laughs> old. to sign. We're old. We're That's old. another way to Everything put it. Hurts. Um, I was one of the first people to sign with the ad network that I was with. And I was in this really, really, really good contract, which meant that I sort of had to say yes to everything that they put my way. So toward the end, I was doing this ad for this car company that was sticking me in a car with my kids. Um, 
driving somewhere and playing word games in a mm. car. Like, I'm the last... Can I cuss on this podcast? Yes, please. <laughs> I'm the last fucking mother that is going to play fucking word games with her fucking kids <gasps> in the fucking car. Like, it's the last thing I would ever do. And there they are having me play a word game with my kids in three different posts. And by the third post, my kids were like, we have to do this again? Oh, oh God, mom, mom, no. I'm like, my kid was just like, please don't let me do this. I don't want to do this. And I was like, what am I doing? Like, what is this? <laughs> this is insane. Um, I think there's, I mean, again, like, I, I, there's this real irony to me that, that people who were able to make a name for themselves by being authentic then, right, had to perform authenticity. Right. And I don't know about you, but I feel like I'm kind of fucked up because... <laughs> <laughs> Because there's this thing that happens, I think, if if you become known and you're known as being candid or known as being irreverent, which I think both of us were, um, and then you also have to perform that irreverency and that candidness, mm-hmm. that it can ma- especially, I guess, if you're already prone to overthinking— <laughs> Like, it makes me sort of, I I sometimes used to, and I don't think so much anymore, but I think it's involved with, you know, my depression is like, where is my there? Who am I? What is going, you know, like, not yeah. like literally who am I? But yeah. it, it exacerbates imposter syndrome in this oh incredible gosh. way. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I was listening to this song. Can I read you this lyric? Sure. I was listening to a song on the airplane, and this depression has made me... Um, hear music differently mm-hmm. like I start to hear lyrics I, I, I listen to music that I've listened to before and I'm like oh wait a minute this person is writing about depression or this person is writing about imposter syndrome and there's this band called mating ritual and they have a um a, a song called thief and the the chorus of the song says I worked myself to the bone to find I'm just a thief who'd run out of gold mm. And I heard that on the plane on the way here, and like I like I started crying, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, I have to go back and listen to that again." And I had to go back and listen to it again, and I was like, "That is what I felt like mm-hmm. after all of this had happened when 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 the industry crashed and we were left with sort of like the ruins around us." I was like, "I was a thief who had run out of gold." They caught me. They like, caught me. That was like they found out. Shit. You know, yeah. Who am I now? <laughs> who am I now? The sponsors got involved and took over and took away the power, and now I'm just a voice in the void. Mm-hmm. I thought about that a lot. Um, in that that sense of like, okay, there's this person that I pretended to be, and then there's who I really am, and you know, can I be both? Should I be both? Especially when I was reading you, um, talk about your relationship with men <laughs> <laughs> my relationship with men as i look out the window to my boyfriend oh, okay well it's past tense <laughs> we'll use past tense it's past tense for me but i connected a lot um with this idea that i people think of me as being sassy and like i said irreverent truth teller but in my relationships with men for a long time like, I wasn't that. Right. And you write about that, too. Yeah, I do. Um, and interestingly, uh, I, I, it's, it's very interesting that you bring that up with me because I have received several, several, several messages from um, very famous women that I've interacted with who um, watched me during my marriage and sent me messages after they read, have read this book and said, it all makes sense now. Mm-hmm. It all makes sense now because you you had this persona online and you had this persona or you at least had this presence with me and then you would get around him and you would completely close down. And it was, it was, it was um, an automatic um, reaction of mine. To close down mm-hmm. around men. Yes. 
I think it's something I've now, you know, since read about and done some work on, you know, myself. Right. And I was just going to say, it's, I, I guess it's a, it's now I understand it's a recognized phenomenon that like strong, independent, when people who are like women who are like strong, independent, you know, go-getters, that there is this phenomenon that they then enter into relationships that are unequal. Mm-hmm. It's almost like we seek them out <laughs> in a very unhealthy way, I'm going to say. Um yeah. And it was, and for me, I can, you know, talk to myself, but I feel like I was like, I needed someone to be like, yes, you are an imposter. Like, that's what my kind of mental illness was looking for, was mm-hmm. was like, you're not that confident person you play. Like, right. you do need this other person to remind you of who you, you really are. Me. You need me to remind you who you are. Yeah. You, and you need me to hold you together. Yeah. And you need me to hold your baggage. And you need me to do this for you. So do you understand that? Like, I am here to perform a duty for you. You need me. Yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah, I absolutely do oh. need you, right? Oh, of course. Right? Yeah, of course. course I need and you. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I'm yeah, so lucky uh, to yeah. have you. I'm so lucky, I'm lucky to, have to have you have around. You. <laughs> <laughs> to tell me my place. Thank you so much. Right? <laughs> I mean, we're joking about it a little bit, but it, there is like this very, I mean, it took me, it's taken me some time, you know. It, it was interesting to sort of see you go through it in the book, like mm-hmm. to, to discover that lie for yourself. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it was, you know, again, um, I actually wrote my father a letter before I gave him the book mm-hmm. and he's read it and he wrote me a text last week. Um, Because I talk a lot about sort of the trauma from my father in my childhood. And none of us as kids have talked about the trauma from my father in our childhood. Um, He was very menacing. He had a very um, unpredictable temper. And that temper um, scared us all into sort of a hiding. And what it did for me is it scared me into a hiding in all of my romantic relationships after I would just go sort of into hiding with like what I needed or what I felt or um, how I reacted to things because whatever I felt was wrong. Right. What they felt was the right thing. I think the term now is called gaslighting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that. <laughs> We're experiencing it on a national level. Now. Now. And I'm like, I like attract, like I am so easily gaslighted. Like I attract gaslighters into my life. Like crazy, like a moth. Yeah, I was going to say so. like, I'm, I too, like it, it took years yeah. <laughs> to see it. But yeah, like I was like looking, I, I just wanted to be, I wanted someone to solve the imposter syndrome, but in the most unhealthy yeah. way, right? Right. To solve exactly. it by saying yes. you're the worst thing. Yes, I'll yeah. solve this imposter th- thing for you. I'll tell you which one you are. You're the lesser. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Everything's clear That's now. Exactly what I felt. Yes. <laughs> I feel so seen, but you. Do, but you're not. You're not. You're not actually seen. Um, you're not. No. <laughs> <laughs> I have to tell you about my amazing bra from Third Love. I mean, I. I literally have to tell you about it because they're the sponsor right now. <laughs> but I also do want to share with you that I love my third love bra. Um, you know, sometimes they say you forget you're wearing it. It's so comfortable. But I will say that I never forget when I'm wearing a third love bra because it is so comfortable. I mean, I don't know about you, But I never quite forget I'm wearing a bra. I mean, it's just there. It'd be like forgetting you're wearing clothes, right? Um, But I do recognize when a bra is more or less comfortable. And this one is really, really comfortable. But what's really great about Third Love is that you can find these comfortable bras without going into a store and having a stranger handle your, your girls. Instead, you take a fit finder quiz. You answer a few simple questions in 60 seconds, and over 12 million women have done this and found their perfect bra. It is somewhat fun. They have interesting analogies for your who has 
uh, bell-shaped or, or you know, do they point in opposite directions? I had never really thought about these things. But now if you take this quiz, you, like me, will have to think about these things. Every customer has 60 days to wear, wash, and put to the test this perfect bra. If you do not love it, return it in third level, wash it, and donate it to a woman in need. Fit stylists are also available every day via chat, text, or phone if you do want a stranger to talk to you about your breasts. Returns exchanges are free and easy. They are an industry leader with 70 sizes, including half cup sizes. Hello, I discovered I am a half cup size. It is one of the most comfortable bras you will ever own. Tagless labels mean there's no itching. They have straps that don't slip. They have ultra smoothing fabrics. They're lightweight and they have super thin memory foam cups. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now they're offering my listeners 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash friends to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash friends for 15% off today. If you are listening to this podcast, chances are you know who Jamel Hill is. And if you don't, you really should. The Venn diagram of her interests and the interests of this podcast is very much almost a circle. She's a sports expert. She is a political junkie. She's a social media BS detector. She's also very, very funny. And she has a new Spotify original podcast called Jamel Hill is Unbothered. She posts every Monday and Thursday, and you can catch her and her two co-hosts, Michael Arsenault, who is a friend of our pod, and Cole Wiley with their insightful and entertaining, uh, they're not hot takes. They're, they're better than hot takes. I could say they're extremely hot takes, but that seems pejorative as well. You know what? They're just smart and funny. You're going to want to hear what they have to say about news, sports, politics, music, and other life or death issues, like why the best parties are the ones you sneak into. Listen to Jamel Hill is Unbothered for free on Spotify. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night, no matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale, even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great. There is a lot of healing in this book. Like, you know, literally, as far as like you're coming to, to overcome this depressive episode. And then also there's healing between you and your siblings, between you and your mother, you and your father. I do want to come back to talking about your mother, though. Um, I was very moved by the scene in your therapist's office with her. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's chapter 10. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, I, I still get emotional when I think about writing that chapter and, and going through that chapter. Yeah. I, um, had her come into a um, therapy session with me where we, talked about some things she had said to me 20 years ago about religion and the fact that I had left the religion and how that was going to change our relationship and how it had knocked me flat on my back um, because I had tried so hard to be the valedictorian of being her kid mm -hmm. and making her happy. And when I had finally decided for me that I didn't believe anymore in this religion— and believing in certain other things, she didn't accept me. And it had haunted me for years. And being able to say that out loud in front of her just changed everything between us. Um, that she heard me and that she was able to respond in a way that was like, oh my, I can't believe that you've been carrying this around and I feel so terrible that I said that to you. And um, I, I have so much to learn from her in terms of her, um, she's guileless. Mm. She's a completely guileless individual. She has, she cannot hold a grudge. She will always, like, forgive and try to be better. And um, my mother is the hero of this book. <laughs> she is. 
She really is. I am. I'm showing up to all the readings, and my boyfriend didn't understand this. Um, I ordered like five different sequin dresses. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, what are you doing? And I was like, I have to show up to the readings so that people understand that I am the hero of this book and not my mom. Mm. Who is like, people have said when they read the book, oh, your mom is like going to be the star of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, your mom is like, your mom comes off as being like the most amazing thing in the world. And she is. I mean, that's the truth. She like, is. I, 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 like, yeah, I, qu- I think there can be two heroes to a story. <laughs> you know, I mean, I what, you know, what got to me about the story about your mom, besides me having my own mom shit that is yet to be resolved. Um, although, you know what, something about what you wrote did, did help me, really? which was the idea that she had no idea the impact that those words had on you. Yeah. And it's so easy to to not know that, right? For us, yeah. She she said to me, "Without Christ in our in our relationship, we can no longer have the same relationship that we've had." Mm-hmm. She said those words to me, and I remember feeling like I think I said in the book, I, it felt like she was choking me when she said those words. And was you were how old were you then? I was twenty two. Right. Mm-hmm. And that change that was like a pivot point, pivot, yeah. And mm-hmm. it completely reframed your relationship. Your for you, it completely reframed the relationship. It reframed how you felt about yourself. Like all these things, this whole domino, you yeah. know, effect. Yeah, and you carried it around. I carried it around and around and around and around. I was like, I'm alone now. I'm alone now. I'm completely alone, and I will always take care of myself. I will always provide for myself. I will always be the one who's in charge of everything that I do. It's just me. I felt very alone. And the magic and tragic thing is how easy it was. Easy. I shouldn't say easy. It wasn't easy for you to talk to her, but it was simple. Maybe that's the word. To talk to her. My therapist joked that I bought her a yacht. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I bought her a yacht. Like, I paid my therapist enough money for a yacht in order to get my mother in there to say, Mom, this hurt me. And for my mom to say, oh, my God, I'm so sorry that it hurt you. Or she would say, oh, my heck, I'm sorry this hurt you. <laughs> and I, yeah. I, yeah, simple but not e- definitely not easy. Right. Um, in CBT therapy, one of the catchphrases in that, I'm going to be full mm-hmm. of, like, different therapeutic catchphrases for this episode— uh, is check it out. Have you ever heard that? No. Yeah, it's a one of the principles is like if you have a thought, right? You're carrying an idea around. What you need to do is check it out. Like, is is the inside is this truth I have in my head related at all to the outside world? Interesting. And it's something that I still have to remind myself to do. You know, um, uh, and it can be, it can be something like. I have now created this idea that this piece I have due is the most important piece in the world and, like, the world's <laughs> going to end if I don't get it, if it's not perfect, if it's not on time. And I can, like, ask a friend, like, you know, this is what I'm feeling about this. Could you tell me, <laughs> like, you know, and it just helps to hear it from someone else, you know? Right. But yeah. it also addresses the kind of thing you had with your mom. Like, you, if you believe some somebody feels of some way about you, like, you're supposed to check that out, too. Okay. That's really good. That's a really good thing to to consider. Yeah, I like that. yeah. And I had to do that in my relationships too. Like, if I'm certain, like my husband, like mad at me about X, Y, Z, like, and I'm so certain about it. <laughs> I know this. I can't. I don't even want to ask him because it'll be embarrassing to ask him because I know it's true. And then to like be like, hey, that other day, and he's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, oh, what? I don't like. They don't. They don't remember. Oh, they never ago. remember. What? And I think it's no. genuine too. Like at first, I'm like, you, you, you are, you are now just being mean to me, <laughs> 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 saying you don't remember this very important slight. No, it just doesn't. Would you buy a T-shirt for fifty dollars if you knew it only cost seven dollars to make? I don't think you would. I wouldn't. 
And with Everlane, you never have to overpay for quality clothes. Everlane only makes premium essentials using the finest materials without traditional markups. They want you to know what you're paying for and why, so they tell you the real costs and are radically transparent about every step in their process. Uh, Not too long ago, someone tweeted at both me and Everlane about wanting to know where something was manufactured. They couldn't find it on the page. And there was a direct message from Everlane telling them exactly uh, where to find this factory. I think they even gave them like a place on the map. I like Everlane because of this transparency. I also like Everlane because I like these kinds of clothes, these simple, straightforward, but really well-made ones. Uh, I have just ordered, I am not kidding, I just ordered a pair of their new lightweight uh, summer jeans, which I'm really looking forward to. And they just came out with trainers that capitalize on, I would say, um, the everyday trainer, not quite you know, the ugly shoe trainer, but the trainer, you've definitely seen it around. Like it looks a little bit like a shoe that's supposed to be comfortable, but in a good way. They have a really cool version of it. It's called the trainer. And maybe the best thing about it is it comes in really neat colors like butter and glacier and navy. I have my eye on the butter one. Essentials like their Cotton Crew tea are exactly what they should be. Versatile, simple, stylish, made from quality materials. Check out Everlane's Quality Basics, sustainable silks, premium Japanese denim, made at the world's cleanest denim factory, Italian-made leather shoes, outerwear made from water bottles, and perfectly fit Oxford shirts and more. Right now, you can check out my personal collection, which has those trainers, at everlane.com slash friends. Plus, you'll get free shipping on your first order. That's everlane.com slash friends everlane.com slash friends. If you have been listening to this show for any length of time, you know FrameBridge is one of my uh, continuing sponsors and also a place that I actually buy from. This show is in particular filled with sponsors that I actually buy from. I am sitting in my office at home right now and I can point to, I think, three or four FrameBridge items um, that I have on my shelves. They are, what I love about these particular pictures is that they're all snapshots. Uh, There's one of me and my dad at a TCU football game. There's one of me and my husband and his dad at a Villanova game. There's one of me and my best friend on the beach. They're, They're the kind of photos that you would post to Instagram. Indeed, they are Instagram photos, but they remind me of particular times and particular places and particular people that I love. And it was so easy to get these snapshots framed that, you know, I I kind of addicted to it. And I suggest that you start doing this too. It is a great way to commemorate, not necessarily a special occasion, but just a special moment, um, a special someone, the kind of everyday thing that you look back on and realize was one of the moments that made your life as good as it is. So FrameBridge uh, does all of this, by the way, for $39. All shipping is free. My listeners will get 15% off their first order at framebridge.com when they use my code FRIENDS. Again, that's framebridge.com. Use my offer code FRIENDS. Get started today. Frame your photos or send the perfect gift for weddings, birthdays, and special events. Again, or not so special events. Just go to framebridge.com, use promo code FRIENDS, and you will get that additional 15% off your first order. Do you know what the worst sound in the world is? It's your alarm clock if you haven't gotten enough sleep. No matter how much you love the song that you're waking up to, when it wakes you up in the morning, you just want it to stop. Uh, I would say that that actually happened to me this morning, um, I had a very early meeting to go to, like early, 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 and I just could not open my eyes. I kept hitting snooze. Finally, I had to text the person that was picking me up and tell her I was running late, but fortunately, she was running late too. Now, imagine a different scenario. It's not that the alarm goes off, and it's not that you have uh, to hit the snooze button. Instead, the surface temperature of your bed gradually adjusts to wake you up gently and naturally without the sound of an alarm. Imagine waking up rested and alert, not having been jolted out of sleep. This is not science fiction. It is the new pod by Eight Sleep. 
The Pod by 8 Sleep is a high-tech bed designed specifically to help you achieve optimal sleep fitness. And there's a reason why Time Magazine calls 8 one of the best inventions of the year. It combines dynamic temperature regulation and sleep tracking to enhance your rest and recovery. It learns your sleep habits and adjusts the temperature automatically. That means if you like your bed cool, but your partner likes a bed warm, you can now have both at the same time. And you don't ever have to use an alarm clock again. Try the pod out for 100 nights. If you don't love it, they will refund your purchase and arrange for a free pickup. They already sold out of their first two batches of the pod, so get it while it lasts. For a limited time, you can also get $150 off your first purchase when you go to 8sleep.com slash friends. That's $150 off and free shipping at E-I-G-H-T sleep.com slash friends. E-I-G-H-T sleep.com slash friends. So we established that you did not actually die. Yeah. And that the doctors get mad if you say that or get touchy. I should say. Um, but you did go into the abyss. Right. Has your relationship to the abyss changed or did it change over the, the time that you were getting this treatment? Um, so the abyss is what I call it in the book because my mother misheard the doctor on the first day of my treatment he took her over to the monitor and said, this is the BIS, the BIS, which is mm. a bi-index. It's a, it, by, it, it stands for a certain monitor that, like, monitors uh, anesthesia. Spoilers for Heather's index. book. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so we called it the abyss the entire time I was going through it. And I had it engraved on a, um, a, a bracelet that I gave her for Mother's Day. Because it was, like, so symbolic of what I was doing. I was literally going all the way down. Mm -hmm. And um, because my heart was still beating, and I've been—a couple of people have asked me on this book tour so far about my relationship with religion now because of where I've been. And your heart is independent of your brain. And I didn't know this. I learned this after the fact. Like, your heart sort of beats regardless of what your brain is doing. And, but your, you know, your your brain controls your breathing. So they had to insert a breathing tube every time. So I never saw a light. I never saw, you know, images. I never saw people. I never saw anything while I was gone. I really call it sort of like a sweet sweet, lovely nothingness. Mm. And I looked forward to it. I looked forward to this, you know, blip in time every time I went in because it was exactly what I had wanted for 18 months was the nothingness. Mm -hmm. And it, I came to appreciate it because it, it, because it cured me. I mean, I'm not, it didn't cure my depression, but it cured my brain enough that I felt better. And so um, my relationship with it is, at first I was just like, well, this is like, this is crazy. Like, this is stupid. This is dumb. Like, what are we doing three days a week, fasting for 20 hours at a time? And then when I felt better, like, I completely, like, I was like, I can't wait. I can't wait to go under. I can't wait for that, like, mm -hmm. little blip of complete and utter nothingness. But would you still look forward to that nothingness today? Um, <laughs> there are certain days when my kids are a lot, you know, when my dog is a lot. You know, you know my dog isn't necessarily on an antidepressant, but she should be, and it's crazy. And it's, a, it's an option, I'm telling you. It works. I know. <laughs> I, she, she actually has bitten a jogger who was very forgiving and didn't sue us. Um, because she ran out of the door and chased the jogger down the oh. street. Um, but no, I don't, I don't, that's the thing is that the difference for me, the way that I explain it, I used to wake up and I would, I would be so consumed with anxiety. I would start almost screaming silently. Mm -hmm. I was so consumed. The anxiety would set fire to my body because it was like, wow, am I going to get all of this done? And I wake up now and it's like, okay, yeah, we're waking up. We're waking up. 
We're waking up. And the delicious difference in that cannot be really explained because I don't wake up, like, burning. Um, I don't wake up in a vat of acid anymore. I wake up happy and joyful to meet the day. So So I confess there's a part of me that wants to just, like, share depression symptoms with you (laughs) (laughs) yes like oh did you feel this oh you felt that too you know like that that stuff Uh um because i definitely like you talk about not changing and it just being too much you know to even think about like getting in the oh my god getting in the shower that's you know It just Please also don't tell me to take a shower. Really? Do I have to take a shower? Ugh. And it's just all, everything, every decision is like moving a mountain, right? Yes. Like from, I used to stand in front of the refrigerator and not eat because I would, I, my depression, one of the forms it took was not eating a lot because I would stand in front of the refrigerator and I couldn't decide. So I just shut the refrigerator and go back to bed. <laughs> you know, like it wasn't that I wasn't hungry. I mean, I kind of wasn't hungry, but just the <laughs> act of deciding what to eat was yeah. just... Too much. Too much. It's all too much. So, but okay, but I, but I don't, we're not going to, okay, we did a little bit of that, but I do want to sort of, um, again, so we say in AA, I want to live in the solution because you just talked about it a little bit and it is hard to explain to people who haven't gotten to the other side, mm-hmm. what the other side feels like. Cause I didn't even know what the other side felt like for a long time. You know, I'm still not sure. Sometimes I tell people it's like not getting hit by a bus every day. Right. (laughs) (laughs) It's just that subtle. Yeah. It's just that one little subtle thing. I didn't get hit by a bus today. Well, I mean, I sort of mean it because like every day you you don't think, okay, normal people never think about the fact they didn't get hit by a bus. Right? Right. Right. I am very conscious of the fact I didn't get hit by a bus today. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and, And that... I, and I, I joke, but it's also true. Like it allow that realization also really allows me to just get through some of the like more minor kind of blips in my life, right? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, that's right, I didn't get hit by a bus today. You know, right. I can do this. Like, I can or not do this. That's actually also a really key thing, right? Yes. Like, I can saying no, not mm-hmm. do this. So, for you, living in the solution, one of the things you talk about in the book is that you practice letting go every single day. Yeah. So what does that feel like? Um, what that feels like is, you know, it's hard. It's hard for a type A personality to let things go. Um, I let things drop all the time. Um, and, and miraculously, the world goes on, right? Mm-hmm. We never believed in the state that we were in that life would go on if this, uh, if this ball dropped. And miraculously, life goes on. And so I'm much more willing. I mean, I'm still on top of my game. But if some, <laughs> I'm still oh, on top of my game. Yeah, don't get me wrong. I'm still valedictorian. <laughs> but if something drops, like, I'm, you know what? I, we'll solve that next week. We'll solve it next month. Um, for me, how I explain it to people is, like, being on the inside of it was the demon inside me telling me I didn't belong and being outside of it is me going, that is the stupidest thought I ever had, is, is being able to recognize, oh, my, my God, Heather, like, of course, they're not going to be better off without you. They're the, you're, you're their mother. You're their best friend. You know, you're, you're the one holding it together for them. You're the one providing that work for them. Like, of course, they're not going to be better off without you. Um, it's knowing the difference and being able to recognize that. Um, and I love being able to recognize that, um, that I'm not getting hit by a bus. <laughs> <laughs> that bus just missed me again. Just missed me. <laughs> Very close. You know, something that I get asked a lot, um, and I'm sure you do too, is what can I do about my friend, sister, daughter, mother, cousin? Yeah who suffers with a mental illness. And I should be clear with people that I am a manic depressive, so I've just focused on the depressive stuff. Sometime I'll I'll have someone on who can talk about reorganizing closets at 3 in the morning. But (laughs) um, I get asked this, and I'm sure you get asked it. um, What what do you say? And I'll ask you after it. Well, there's a part of me that's like, 
Should people even ask that question? Yes, they absolutely should. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Because um, I answered this question in Toronto last week, and I had a friend who um, ruminated on it and sent me an email and said, those two words that you said have changed my life. And I'm not bragging about that, but somebody in the audience said, well, what did you tell your friends while you were going through this? Like, what did you say? And I I said, you know, I didn't say much. I didn't want people really to know just how bad it was. But what I desperately, desperately wanted them to understand was to believe me. Believe me. Like, I don't want to feel this way. I I don't want to be this way. I don't want to look this way. I don't want to act this way. I don't want to feel it. Believe me. Please believe me that something is wrong. Um, And having someone believe, and, and that was what my mother did. My mother knew. My mother, my mother looked at me and she saw the illness in the organ of my brain. And she believed it. And that gift from her saved my life. And I, w- I would say to anybody, you know, if, if there's anything that you can offer a friend who is depressed, believe them. That's, that's really all you have to do is like look at them in, in their eyes and say, I, I, th- I know this is real. This is real. Heather, thank you so much. Yeah. And that is it for the show. I think we kind of wrapped up okay and got to some really deep places. So I'm not going to do a real long, like, self-care monologue here. I'm just going to remind you to get some self-care. Please take care of yourself. And I will see you next week. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Nike, Walmart, and Zappos. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you can get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.